Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 27, 2015. This is episode 1565 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show. And uh, I have a lot of feedback to cover today, a lot of varied topics. This is going to be a great show. I'm actually really excited to uh, to be doing it today. It might be out a little bit late because it took me a while to get everything ready for today's show. Uh, but it should be a lot of fun. Before I even get into the typical housekeeping and all, though, I'd like to say a little bit about severe weather this time of year and like the experience we just had going through this weekend. So Friday we got two and a half inches of rain. I put out some really awesome video of the swale footage and we really didn't get anything very severe up here where I'm at. We got some winds that I would say were 60, 70 miles an hour uh, in one of the cells that came through, but overall it wasn't that bad. The week before, I don't know what the wind speeds were, but I have a rain chain coming down from one of my gutters instead of a, a, a typical rain gutter thing that comes down and, and drops the water out. We have this chain, and it's made up of little watering cans, and they fill up and water goes through the bottom of them. When that thing's full of water, it's heavy. It's really heavy. Um, I had some, some folks over here, and we were standing outside, and all of a sudden I went, I think we're getting some hail, and it sounded like the impact of hail on some of the metal gutters And I looked around and I saw no hail and I looked at the rain chain. The rain chain was horizontal and banging the metal gutter. So it actually lifted that rain chain horizontal. Um, those were some pretty wicked winds. Those were the storms that I talked about last week that put some trees down over the road and we never even knew it because the sheriff's deputies came out and took care of it uh, while we slept. And I said to remember those first responders. So that, you know that's kind of what we've had. And then you know last night... My son and his fiance were here, and uh, we actually had them stay the night because of what was going on just south of them and the concern that that would come up. And this was an interesting storm. Um, I say that with no disrespect to the people who had serious damage yesterday, but I've just never seen a storm behave this way. And it, it, it starts to drive home the fact that you can't depend on what the weather department says is going to happen. You have to pay attention as it's happening. So this storm for formed a squall line out by Stephenville, Texas which is fairly west and southwest of us. And it started coming in. It started kicking tornadoes up early in the day. I think 19 reported tornadoes yesterday. And it tracked almost due east, which didn't make any sense because all the other storms were going north by northeast, so more north than east, and very, very slowly moving. It it's one of these like long telegraph punches where it took forever to get here. And as the storms continued to intensify that were going east, the storms that were going north by northeast that actually hit Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington, the Metroplex, etc., would weaken as they got closer. And yet the, the, the storm that were producing the cells that were going due east was getting stronger and stronger, continued rotation. They must have had confirmed rotation by radar for four hours. And the storm stalled and moving at speeds of 10 miles an hour And at times they even said, we can't give you a forecast of when it will be there next because it wouldn't go anywhere because it's sitting still. And that's part of why this, in, in spite of the fact that the tornadoes down there weren't the biggest tornadoes that you would have, did so much damage because it sat still. There was places where pieces of road were literally heaved up and washed off. So the top, the hard top road's gone. Um, and that's just from the intensive rain. 
I heard from one person on Facebook that uh, a friend of his lost the roof of their uh, mobile home, but everybody was okay, but their bull was injured and can't even stand up, so they lost livestock. We didn't really hear any reports of serious injuries or deaths, but this was a weird storm, and once that one main cell started tracking east, as the, as the storm line came up, they would form cells, and it would track east behind it. It was like a military column, like six major supercell thunderstorms in a row, all tracking east, while everything else continued to go north by northeast. Um, and totally different outcomes to those two storms. It was like there was this cap that was catching and sending east just pieces, and the rest was bypassing and, and, and just being rain and wind and 40 miles an hour and a little bit of hail and, and what have you, uh, that type of thing. So it's, uh, it's, again, I just want to reiterate that I think we all should really pay attention to these weather events as they're going on. And just because the weather guesser says, hey, you're going to be in the bullseye of it, doesn't mean you're going to get hit. And just because they said, well, it's probably going to go south or north or east or west of you, doesn't mean you're going to escape by. Um, this one didn't play out the way it was supposed to. So just a heads up this time of year, especially if you live anywhere from the Midwest out to the East Coast, uh, specifically like Virginia and South, those are the areas where you get the most... Uh, on the East Coast, Virginia, South, the, the Midwest, all the way up to Canada, the most severe weather uh, events. And uh, the states we don't think of, I saw a report today from the Weather Channel showing states like uh, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana. Of course, we did have that big storm in Arkansas um, a couple years ago and a big one in Alabama a couple years ago, but we don't really think of those as the tornado states. But when it comes to track time, how long the tornado's on the ground for how long, those three states have the longest track times of tornadoes, and that's a big part of whether or not you get hit. So just a heads up, make sure you have your blackout kits in, in, in place. So if you're without power, even if you have more extensive blackout uh, stuff like generators and all, you can find everything when it's dark out. Make sure you have a plan. Um, this is just that time of year. Anyway, before I get to all of your feedback for today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. When I need silver or gold, or I want silver or gold, and I need some more, I go to JM Bullion and I order it from them. Why? Great service, uh, free shipping, and it's still a small enough company that I can talk to the owner of the company if there's some kind of headache or problem or something like that. You know, when I approached other large silver and gold houses like Monix and Atmex, it just wasn't possible. They've been the best partner I've ever had in the silver and gold business. Hope to be doing business with them for a very long time in the future. Remember, I think you should have 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold as an assurance plan for your entire wealth portfolio. The best place I know to uh, to build up on your, uh, your, your physical metals is at jmbullion.com. Check them out. Give them a chance to win your business, and you'll see why I feel that way. Next up today, knifekits.com. America is quickly becoming a, a nation where... If something breaks, you throw it away or call a guy to fix it. We don't seem to be developing the skills that once made America the, 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 the can-do country. I mean, that's what I think America was in the 50s and the 60s. Like, when you, when you went and talked to anybody in, in America, any, especially any guy out in America, like, the last thing you want to do is call someone else to do something. Now, I think there's a place for that. There's times where, well, I could do this, but I don't have the time. I have 20 things to get done. This one thing can be outsourced. I'm going to get that done by somebody else, but... When you get to the point where you're having somebody fix things that you you could learn to fix, but you just don't know how anymore, that's where we've started to devolve. That's where we started to get into a situation where people don't really have hard skills, physical skills anymore. And that means they're not teaching them to their kids, and their kids aren't teaching them to their grandkids. 
So it's a good idea to start regaining those skills. And building a knife is a great place to start. You learn basic use of hand tools, and you actually show yourself that you can get something done. And what a great project to do with a kiddo as well. Check out KnifeKits.com. They have an extensive array of kits. And remember, it's just handle material and a blade when it comes right down to it. If you mess the first one up, the blade, the frame, everything will still work. Get some extra handle material. Try it again. Keep doing it till you get it right. It won't take you that many times, and it could lead to either a lifelong hobby or you never know, maybe even a career as a custom knife maker. Check them out today. You'll be surprised at how easy it is to do. KnifeKits.com. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode, 1565. Alex Shrugged has these three great ones for us at tspwiki.com. We have first and foremost, the invention of the pencil. Then we have stooping over in defense and standing tall in victory on September the 11th. And then we have the beginning of modern Judaism. And I'm going to read the pencil one just because I really had no idea how we got the pencil. And I thought this was kind of interesting. It was a dark and stormy night. That's like the, the typical opening line to the, 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 the proverbial novel, isn't it? It was a dark and stormy night, and John was looking out at his cattle. And No, it was a dark and stormy night. A tree fell and exposed an outcropping of graphite near Barrowdale, England. It looked like lead, but it would leave a dark mark much better than lead. It was brittle, so people experimented with wrapping various materials around the graphite to reinforce it. This year, the German-Swiss naturalist, Conrad Gesser, describes carving wood strips to hold the graphite in place. We will have to wait until 1795 for a process to be invented that mixes the graphite with clay and fired to the varying to vary the softness of the pencil. Now we can finally hold that number two pencil in our mitts. My take by Alex Shrugged. Just to be clear, there's no lead in pencils, so you can't get lead poisoning from them. <laughs> Duh. Anyway, uh, pencils come in various hardness levels. The most common is the number two pencil using the USA numbering system, or HB pencil using the European number letter system. Drafting pencils are rated using the European system from HB, which is the softest, to 10H, which is the hardest. I prefer a 2H pencil for general work. The more clay added to the graphite, the harder the pencil. If you can imagine the end of the world as you know it, and you must create the most simple of things from scratch, how would you ever even make a pencil? Yeah, I'll tell you what. This one, it, that's sort of why I read it too, Alex. The, the, how would you even make a pencil? I think more though for me, it's thinking back to this time, like 1565, and how much we take for granted today. Like No one would be surprised if you were told, hey, you know what? In 1565, they didn't have refrigerators. You know, they didn't have microwaves or DVD players or iPods or electricity for that matter. Not the kind of electricity. I mean, there's electricity is a force of nature, but they didn't have electrical wires and stuff like that. And you could live this laundry list of things. You know, they didn't have cars. They didn't have gasoline. You know, they, um, they had alcohol, but they probably didn't really understand how to use it as a fuel for anything or, or what have you. So there's so many things they didn't have that you, you, you just kind of lose sight of the fact, well, surely they had ways. I mean, Shakespeare was born the year before. They could write, right? Well, sort of. And I think that one of the monumentous things that you don't realize is how important this would have been. You know, everybody has the nostalgic image in their mind of the old days, and the guy's got a little jar of ink and a feather quill pen, and you dip it, and you write a little bit, and you dip it again, and you write a little bit, and the 
elegant handwriting and all, but that's not very practical for jotting things down for, for a lot of things, right? So before this, I guess you would have been primarily using charcoal, which has its own challenges. And so what we're actually seeing here is one of the most fundamentally simplistic things in the world. Being able to write stuff down actually required significant more effort to even have a product capable of writing stuff down. And it makes you start to realize how smart maybe the people in the you know, back-to-the-land permaculture-type worlds, farmstead, that are looking for additional income sources are that do things like grow coppiced willow to make artist charcoal. And, and, and the fact that that actually is a significant amount of effort to do something that we can just go down to the store and buy something that does that. But what a world to have lived in where it was a monumentous thing that someone figured out how to make a pencil. It should make you really grateful for the opportunities that we have today and a little bit apprehensive about how many opportunities we're wasting, we're destroying, and we're letting slip by today. There was a time really in the history of the world a couple seconds ago that a pencil was a big deal. And God help us if it ever becomes a big deal again. My take by Jack Spierko. And with that, let's uh, remind you guys real quick about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, do you like what I do here? If you do and you want it to always be here, consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade. It's 50 bucks a year uh, or $5 a month, your choice. You join for any frequency you want. If you don't want to stay on automatic renewal, you can cancel whenever you want. And it comes out to 18.3 cents an episode if you do $50 a year. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, qualify for a very big discount. And uh, you just email me before, not after you join. TSPC in the subject line. TSPC service discount is the best thing. Send it to jack at com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Everybody else, you just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more. If you've been thinking about becoming a member but not done so yet, please consider doing so today. It really is the way that we pay the bills around here, and I've got some cool stuff coming for you, new additional benefits uh, to the MSB when it comes to discounts. I'm negotiating a few things for you right now. With that, uh, let's take your uh, your first email of the day. Uh, this one was interesting. I almost skipped over it, and, and I'm glad I didn't. It's... Uh, the subject line was TSPC confirmation on media bias. And I even read the, the sentence and I didn't, I almost deleted it. I almost said like, yeah, we know this, right? It says, Jack, this is confirmation that six companies control 90% of all, 90% of all mass media. I, I've known that, right? And I think we've talked about that. So I, this is why I almost skipped it. It says, we have suspected this for a long time, but this article gives more details on how it works. It's from Mercola.com, so you may have already read it. And I want to read some parts of this article to you because what I think is unique is this is the take of a seasoned investigative journalist. Um, and she has an entire interview with Dr. McCullough you can listen to on a video on the article I'll give you the link to. Um, but I'm going to read part of this to you. By Dr. McCullough, you can choose to ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. Most of us rely heavily on the media for information, not realizing that 90% of it is controlled by a mere six media giants. Cheryl Atkinson, a five-time Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist whose television career spans more than three decades, is one of my personal heroes. She was a reporter who, in 2009, blew the lid off swine flu media hype, showing the hysteria was completely unfounded and manufactured. 
She recently left CBS to pursue other avenues of investigative journalism and has authored the highly praised book Stonewalled, My Fight for Truth Against the Forces of Obstruction, Intimidation, Harassment in Obama's Washington, which exposes what, is, what, what goes on behind the scenes in the media and gives you information you can come to think of as real and true. Quote, I left CBS about a year ago when it seemed I had met with so many dead ends trying to continue the original investigative reporting that I've done for so many years there, end quote, Cheryl says. My producer and I just kept hitting brick walls in the last two years, so in trying to get this reporting on television, we certainly weren't alone. Reporters are complaining about this across the board, and many print organizations are broadcast and broadcast outlets. The watchdog reporting that the government values so much is simply not desired for a variety of reasons as much as it once was at the national level. I also think this is a problem in local news. There was no point in staying. I was never in a position to turn up better stories. I have more information, more sources, more whistleblowers, and more I felt I might produce that might I might produce terrific stories than ever before after 20 years in CBS News, and yet utterly lacked the ability to get any of it on television. I could have stayed and done weather stories and stories of the day, but that's just not where my interest was. What led to the downfall of watchdog reporting? Unfortunately, the trend of diluting depth and scope of investigative journalism can even be seen in high-quality programs like CBS's 60 Minutes. I don't know if I call it high-quality. Anyway, which has been a favorite show of mine since its inception over four decades ago. As noted, Cheryl, as noted by Cheryl, the reason for the decline of investigative journalism are complicated, but a big part of it is due to commercial concerns. Basically, commercial and corporate influences came into play, and media outlets grew to accept commercialization as part of the news process. This is back to what Cheryl says. I call it soft censorship, Cheryl says, when you know you have a sponsor and you know it's important to the corporation, are you really going to offend the sponsor by going after stories that they don't like? But I do think it's more overt than that sometimes. The sponsors explicitly complain and argue at the corporate level that certain stories and topics shouldn't be done. We know this is true based on one antidote I put in the book, but there are other antidotes and experiences that reporters have had where they've been told that this is the case. Additionally, there are political factors. There were managers at CBS in those last two years that inserted their ideology into the reporting of producers and reporters, who by and large were very fair. That can change the whole tone of the reporting. So you can read the rest of this. I'm going to skip ahead, though. I want to talk about... Uh, one example, and this is not my favorite guy. I'm really not a fan of, of Dr. Oz. I think that he is actually as guilty of this as anybody else, but it's interesting to see when it happened to him. It's a subtopic of this article, AstroTurfing in Action. A perfect example of AstroTurfing just occurred when GMO Front Group attacked Dr. Oz after he reported on the now scientifically established hazards of glyphosate. And that's, that's a roundup for those who don't know. And the media swallowed and regurgitated the propaganda without any critical thinking whatsoever. Slate Magazine publicized the attack with the headline, Letter from Prominent Doctors Implies Columbia Should Fire Dr. Oz for Being a Quack. The letter accuses Dr. Oz of repeatedly showing, quote, disdain for science and for evidence-based medicine, as well as baseless and relentless opposition of genetic engineering of food crops, end quote. The letter was signed by Dr. Henry I. Miller and nine other, quote, distinguished physicians, end quote. What the media has failed to address is that Dr. Henry Miller is hardly a concerned physician. He's actually a well-known shill for the GMO industry. 
In his capacity as its front man, he was caught misrepresenting himself during the anti-Prop 37 campaign in 2012, which was the GMO food labeling California guy, by the way, guys, pretending to be a Stanford professor opposing GMO labeling, when in fact he's not a professor at Stanford. The TV ad had to be pulled off the air because of misrepresentation. Aside from that, he has a long and sordid history of defending toxic chemicals such as DDT in addition to defending big tobacco. Some of the other nine physicians are also less than distinguished, as noted by U.S. Right to Know. Quote, one was stripped of his medical license in New York and sent to federal prison camp for Medicaid fraud. Yet Dr. Gilbert Ross plays up his MD credentials in his role as acting president of the American Council for Science and Health. Ross was joined on the Columbia letter by ACSH board member Dr. Jack Fisher. So what is ACSH? It's, it's, it sounds like cash to me. ACSH, C-A-S, they just got to move the C and the A. Sounds like a money-making front to me. Let's see what the article says. Though some reporters treat it as an independent science source, the group has been heavily funded by oil, chemical, and tobacco companies. See, it is cash, right? And, and it has a long history of making inaccurate statements about science that directly benefit those industries. For example, claiming that secondhand smoke is not li linked to heart attacks, fracking doesn't pollute water. These facts are relevant in stories about scientific integrity. The scientific accuracy and motivations of the accusers matter when they are publicly challenged by scientific accuracy and motivations of somebody they're trying to get fired. We urge reporters and editors to take a closer look at the source of selling them stories and ideas for better watchdogs. So there's, there's more. Um, Here's a, just a few more things that she says that they're not covering that they should be. According to Cheryl, if journalists would simply cover the news with facts and fairness topics like vaccine side effects, it would see far greater coverage. The reason is it doesn't, it doesn't is because the topic has been deemed untouchable. Other emerging health issues that you don't hear about in the news include uh, the emergence of erythrovirus EVD68, a polio-like virus, but it's not polio. Thousands of people were stricken with it last year, and this virus appears to be linked to cases of paralysis. At least a dozen children died from it, yet you didn't hear about this on the news because it was not, unlike the measles vaccine, something government was interested in reporting. So that's interesting. And she also talks about Obamacare here at the end. But you can, you can read this if you want to. Um, this obviously all is directed toward public health and individual health. And it makes sense because it's from Mercola. But if this is being done with these topics, don't you think it's being done with every single topic that comes out on the news under the sun? How does modern media have any credibility anymore? And why aren't more people like this lady just leaving modern media? Why? You, you now have a, a world where as long as you have a valid source that will go on the record, you can report the information and get it out to millions and millions of people. I would say a good story put out on the Internet has more traction today than it does if it's on 60 Minutes. It really does. So why aren't more people doing it? I'll tell you why in a follow-up piece of feedback that ties so nicely into this. In fact, I have two today that fill back to this lead story very, very nicely. But I will also tell you this. The, the excuse that we're being misled is no longer valid. There's a place 
for personal responsibility. And the truth, in the words of the X-Files, is out there, and you don't have to go look at UFO landing sites to find it. It's dramatically easy to find if you'll weed through enough of the crap to find it. But again, my biggest piece of advice to people in the world today is not so much where to get your information from or who to listen to. It's what do you really want to know. Start asking the questions for yourself. My big problem with modern media isn't just that it lies to you, that it misleads you, and it tells you things that aren't true, and it hides facts from you that it should be reporting. That's bad enough. My bigger problem, though, and the way that I think they've dumbed down the American people at the highest level is by telling you what you are concerned with in the first place. The media today is like a mama bird, and it brings a bunch of chewed-up, regurgitated puke Back to the American people who act like a bunch of baby birds in the nest. And when the mama bird comes down for the 5 p.m. news, they all open their mouth and go, peep, 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 puke down my throat and tell me what to think today. Ask your own questions and you'll be 90% of the way to finding the truth in the first place. And remember, don't trust alternative media just because it's alternative media. Little side note before I go to the next story. I put out a post on Facebook this weekend. Fine-tune your bullshit detectors again. There's an article making its way through the typical alternative media rags. Louisiana bans cash and bans garage sales. They just passed this law, and it went under the radar, and nobody saw it. Now, if you have a garage sale in Louisiana, it's illegal to take cash. Um, the law passed in 2011. 2011. Total number of people prosecuted in Louisiana for taking cash at a garage sale? Zero, because the law was about pawn shops and junk shops and things like that, and people that make a living both buying and selling secondhand goods. Do I think the law was crappy? Yes. Do I think it was an invasion of privacy? Yes. Did alternative media report on it accurately? No. Did mainstream media report on it accurately? No. One told you a sensationalized version of, 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 the, of the false truth, And the other one never told you the truth in the first place that was going on. And it's all being regurgitated now. See, alternative media does the bird thing too, but what they do is they do what I call pass on the puke. That's what, that's what poorly vetted alternative media is doing today. One bird goes, oh look, I found this nugget from the past. I'll make it like it's a new story. So people will read my blog and click on my ads. And they put it out there. And everybody sees it and goes, ooh, puke that down my throat. And then they, they, they gargle with it and they just puke it in the next, next little bird's throat and reblogs it and reblogs it and reblogs it. Okay? Now, how hard was this for me to sleuth out? So I, I saw the article, and I went, this sounds familiar. I remember hearing about this before. Maybe they never passed it, and now it's back. So I started checking Google News for it. I could find only the alternative media rags, the, the basically the online versions of the Inquirer in the prepper space carrying this thing, and I couldn't find anything about it. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. So I look up the bill. I look at the date that the bill passed. That was it. When the, when the lead story is they just did this, and they did it four years ago. And you know what somebody said on Facebook? Just because they're not enforcing it doesn't make it not true. Please wake up. Please wake up. Don't trust anybody. Trust yourself. Trust yourself. Fine-tune your bullshit detector and start asking your own questions. Let's take another one. Speaking of media not telling us the truth, and speaking of being misled, and speaking of being controlled, and speaking of the bigger story not even being what the report that actually is reporting mostly the accurate information is really talking about, let's take a look at this one from Eric. 
Howdy, Jack. You might find this interesting. America's cybersecurity proto-laws branded as surveillance in disguise. This is from the register.co.uk. My snarky comments. This is appearing on a UK website. I haven't seen anything about it on Drudge or elsewhere statewide. Quote two, this is so typical of Democrat Congress foisting this law upon us. The Republicans would never do anything like this if only they were in charge. Oh, wait a minute. Did you see Hillary's latest funny face for the 2016 election? Er, what surveillance bill is being passed? The magicians are working overtime. Laugh out loud. It would be funny if it wasn't so true. Let me read this to you. This is on the UK Register. America's cybersecurity proto-laws branded as surveillance in disguise. This, this, this secondary headline it, it just kind of turns my stomach because I haven't been waiting. It says, you wait ages for computer security bill, then come, then two come along at once. I haven't been waiting for it. I've been dreading it. Here we go. The U.S. House of Representatives, which if anybody missed the sarcasm, it's a Republican Congress and a Republican Senate. And it'll be a Democratic president that's going to sign this bill. Watch. The U.S. House of Representatives has passed not one, but two computer security bills that allow companies and Uncle Sam to share information about citizens. By the way, that's you. Cyber attacks and software vulnerabilities and report any legal liabilities for, and, and remove any legal liabilities for firms doing so. The Protecting Cyber Networks Act which passed by 307 to 116 votes, demands a new Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center. That means spending a lot more of your money on something we don't need. A clearinghouse for material that can be swapped between companies or with the federal government. Everybody's worried about the government paying attention to what you're doing. Let me read that little paragraph that gets just kind of waxed over once again for you folks. The Protecting Cyber Networks Act, which passed by 307 to 116, demands a new Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center, okay, a clearinghouse for material that can be swapped Between companies, comma, or with the federal government. Between companies, like AT&T and Facebook. Hold on. Yeah, now you're outraged. Wait, wait, I have only just begun to piss you off this morning, guys. That data could include citizens' private records and potentially sensitive files. So under the proposed laws, companies will be expected to animize the intelligence before sharing it, and a federal body will check that personally identifying information has been stripped out before releasing information to government bodies. So the companies will be asked to remove your personal connection to the information. And the federal government that's passing the law and providing them the clearinghouse at your expense so they can share the information with each other will be policing it to make sure that everybody cooperates when the federal government lied to you for years and you wouldn't even know that if Edward Snowden didn't come out and confirm it. So we're supposed to trust the fox that's already eating the hens to protect the hen house while the hens are literally being slaughtered in front of us. Okay, let's just keep going on with this, though. The second bill, the National Cyber Security Protection Advancement Act, 
<laughs> also adds legal cover, shielding companies from lawsuits if they choose to share information. It passed by 355 votes to 63. Few people miss this vote, by the way, if you do the math. Anyway, now the two bills will be combined into one document, which has some privacy warriors worried. Quote, the bills are not cybersecurity sharing bills, but surveillance bills in disguise, said Mark Jaycox, legal legislative analyst for the EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation. Like other bills we've opposed during this last five years, they authorize more private sector spying under new legal immunity privileges and use vague definitions that aren't carefully limited to protect privacy. The bill further facilitates companies sharing even more of our personal information with the NSA. Nevertheless, the bills have support from both parties as they move up to the Senate for approval. It seems likely that they will have no problems in the upper chamber. President Obama is highly unlikely to veto them. His cybersecurity coordinator, Michael Daniels, spoke strongly in their favor at the week's RSA 2015 security conference. We've seen information sharing as a critical enabler, Daniel said. It is not an end unto itself because obviously you have to do something with it, otherwise it doesn't do much good. It's really fuel for further operations. Well, at least they told the truth in the end, right? They see it as a critical enabler, and it enables further operations. So this is what you get out of this. If you, if you read through all the bullshit, the government is taking a whole shitload of your money to build yet another center with millions and millions of computers where they'll have to take some other state's water to cool all this shit like they've done in Utah and Maryland where they can take more of your information and put it in one place, allow companies not just to send it to the government and give them legal immunity for doing that, but allow them to share it with each other. Such as Coca-Cola might share information about what they do on your website with, oh, I don't know, the healthcare industry under the guise of cyber terrorism protection. All kinds of things like that. But don't worry, your personal information won't be included in there. Well, really? Really? How long will it take before they go, well, you know, we have to have special consideration when there's an intimate threat to the security of the Internet or the security of the American people or the people of the world as a whole. So that information shouldn't be available generally, but we're not going to throw it away. I mean, my God, what if we find out something really, really important and we need to figure out who did it? We wouldn't want to throw... So what we'll do is we'll sequester that information off into its private little place where it could always be put back here. But don't worry, we won't look at it. It'll be over here on the shelf underneath the file cover and it'll be for you know needs only and there'll be a special court that'll tell us when we can go in there. We can't tell you where it is or what it does or anything like... Because we've never done anything like this before. Oh, wait, we have. This is just more bullshit. This is complete legal, this is blanket legal immunity for every corporation out there that's collecting your data to share that data with the government or anybody else they want to that's part of this clearinghouse. Now, let me explain to you the trap here. How do you get this to, to, to work? Well, how do you get the voluntary participation of all the big corporations that are involved in anything from social media to actual security products to be part of your little project? Well, you want access to all the other people's information in the clearinghouse now, don't you? Well, you have to be a participant. You can't, you can't just, 
You we can't let anybody come in here and look at the you, you gotta be providing if you're gonna be getting. You gotta be part of the team. Yep. Yep. And you'll be surprised at how much of this all fits together as Charlie goes nuts. But turn on your pattern pattern recognition stuff for the show today. Really look for patterns and where we've seen this before in a different space and how this all goes together and how much of human life has been designed for control. So if you want the participation of others in something that they may not want to participate in, you make the rewards such that not maybe they outweigh the cost, but the rewards such that if you don't take the reward, you put yourself at a decided disadvantage to others, and therefore you feel that you have to. And once you're in, you're in. That, that's, that's the solution here to this problem of how do we get all these companies participating. You offer them access to the information of other companies, including their competitors. And you explain to them, well, you don't have to participate yet, but um, if you don't, they'll have information that you won't, and you want to build the best product you can, right? Yeah, you'll see a lot of pattern recognition today if you look for it, especially as we come to the last story of the day. But I'll tell you what the pattern is right now. Um, a, a bill being passed in the House and another bill being passed in the House that raises serious concerns as to privacy. And um, the concept of a, of a bill being passed that not only encourages the behavior of sharing individuals' information, but actually would give companies immunity when they do so, so that they can't face any type of criminal or civil charges for doing so. By a Republican majority Congress... Well, you would think the biased, left-wing, liberal news would be up, but there's nothing about it. What you will find if you run a search on Google News is all kinds of stories about cybersecurity and how there's a problem and we need it and what needs to happen and the government being more transparent and blah, 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 blah. But you won't see anything today as of 12.51 Central Standard Time for 27.15. I see nothing... Nothing, nothing, nothing on this vote in the House of Representatives. So when you look at bias in the media, I think a lot of times people say, well, it's biased toward the Democrats. It's biased toward the progressives and the liberals. It's biased toward the controlling elements of government and fascist business in this country. And here's an example of that. Here's a very clear pattern to recognize. This is important. This is going on. It would You would be led to believe that the bias in the media would have them all over it, but since their guy Obama's going to sign it into law, and where are the outspoken people opposed to it? There's nothing. There's things like DOD's new transparent policy on cybersecurity is still not good enough. Defense Secretary outlines new cybersecurity strategy. Pentagon to strengthen cybersecurity requirements. Pentagon seeks to attract Silicon Valley cybersecurity talent. Wouldn't you think that at least in one of these stories they would casually mention the fact that these two new cybersecurity bills were passed? Nope. 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 And this isn't everything from Wired Magazine to the Jacksonville Business Journal to CIO Today. Other sources here, the unfortunate growth sector, cybersecurity, Forbes. Handling cybersecurity disclosures from Accounting Today. How one CIO stepped, stayed a step ahead of cybersecurity threats, CIO Magazine. What the military can teach us about cybersecurity network world. These are the news stories of the day. Nothing about this. Why? 
because it's in nobody's vested interest in the media or government to tell you about it. Because some of the largest collectors of your information are those six corporations that control 90% of your media. They want this little thing paid for with your money so they can share information with each other about you with complete immunity while doing it. But whatever, let's talk about Kim Kardashian's ass or whatever else is on e-tainment TV or whatever the hell they call it, right? Let's go on to another. Let's leave the Newsday Monday stuff behind for a little bit and um, talk about something as a follow-up to last week. This is from Matthew. Matthew says, I just listened to episode 1561, and I have a fundamental question about conflict resolution in a virtual nation. I can see how arbitration could work, since such systems are already in place. If there's simply a disagreement in the interpretation of a contract, both parties are interested in finding a mutually beneficial resolution. The process would be fairly straightforward. Unfortunately, most of the time, people are only looking out for themselves or are irrational or vindictive. In this case, you need some mechanism for enforcing the results of arbitration. In your podcast, you essentially said the state would step in and enforce it if the threat of, with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. However, why would an IRL, in real life government, be motivated to enforce foreign contract of a virtual nation? I never said that. More in a second. Much of the purpose of the virtual nation is to sidestep the IRL government. I like that IRL in acronym, by the way including de depriving them of tax revenue. If the concept were extended to a stateless anarchist society, how would such a resolution be enforced? I think you answered your own question. The problem is the solution. Unfortunately, most of the time, people are only looking out for themselves. Now, I don't know about that, only looking out for themselves, but I think self-preservation is a big instinct. Let me ask you a question. How can something as crazy as eBay possibly work? Anybody anywhere can set up an eBay account and buy and sell goods. There's very little government oversight. I mean, tax-wise and all there is, of course. But, I mean, when it comes to did seller A give buyer B what buyer B was expecting? Who, who, I mean, who enforces this? The community enforces it. Why can you go to eBay today, look up an item, and make a decision in a matter of moments about whether or not to trust that seller, or, or more accurately, how much trust to give that seller. You know, everybody has to start somewhere. So you might find a new seller that's never really sold much before, has one or two reviews, they seem to be sort of positive, whatever. Now that person you might contact to verify some information from. You might choose a different form of payment with them, or work out a deal, hey, about how about half now and half on delivery, and you need some uh, good exposure. You might work a little bit extra, but if you go there and you see somebody has like 800 reviews and 796 of them are positive, and you want the item and it's being sold for the price, well, you just buy it and somehow that sucker shows up in your mailbox. How the hell does that work? The review system. So if you had a virtual nation where parties refuse to abide by agreed-upon arbitration, who's going to do business with that person next? So you're, you're, you're considering getting web design done in the virtual world, right? It's a, it's a non-physical product. You're going to pay them in Libertas coin or whatever, and they're going to do it, and you see their contract for development and how much you pay up front and how much you pay at the end, and everything looks good, and you check their, their, their reputation there, 
And they have two times that they've gone into arbitration, lost, and failed to comply with the arbitrator. Now, I know this doesn't help the person that didn't get the compliance, but there could be other means by which this could be enforced. It's, there certainly could. And we'll get to that in a second. But isn't that actually better than anything else? Isn't that actually the market doing the work? Would you contract with that person? They'd be out of business. What if we had some sort of like a virtual karma that went forward with people and companies where it could always be viewed? Not only do you have complaints from customers, but in arbitration, they have failed to comply with the arbitrator that they agreed to in the first place. Now, that's one way. Now, another way, and there's multiple ways to do this, there's no reason that an arbitrator can't actually be given the authority to pay restitution in a case that's necessary, or to refund money in a case that's necessary, assuming that the other party still has money, which... That's not really a problem. Here's what I mean by that. If you sue a company because they did a terrible job as a contractor rebuilding your kitchen, and a judge orders them to pay you $10,000 they took from you back, you can't make them do it if they don't have the money because they've gone bankrupt. You can have a judgment held over them, but it is never going to do you any good. The company goes out of business. They open up somewhere else. This already happens. But if the individuals connected to the corporate entities that were citizens of virtual nations maintain the karma that they walked away from this, that stink would stick with them for the rest of their life. There could be companies that provided services that had comp that basically had an escrow of space credits or Libertasian coin or whatever that people put in and that could be used to basically insure them in the event that they fail to win in an arbitration. How important is it? How big is the project, etc.? Contracts could be written with this type of arrangement in the first place. That the company that's selling the services under a large contract is obligated to take a certain portion of the down payment and set it aside in arbitration until such time as both sides sign off on it. Do you do that or not? It's up to you. It's a free market. Get used to it. You don't have to ask the government for shit. And I bet you that any service you wanted, someone would pop up and say, for a small fee, we're willing to do that. And if nobody shows up, maybe you don't need it. So that's one or actual multiple ways that conflict resolution could be handled in a virtual nation. Now, what I said was, in arbitration today, if you and I agree in the, <clears throat> you want to call it this real world, to arbitration by private arbitration, and we agree to a binding arbitration, and we go to that binding arbitrator, and the arbitrator hands down a decision, and I agree with it and you don't, and I take the order from the arbitration company over to the court, the court at state level will enforce it with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. That doesn't mean that's how it would work in a virtual nation. There would be an implicit level of trust required. Therefore, it would require us to develop a system which values trust, which is a lot like what eBay has. It's a lot a seller that has 5,000 reviews and 4,900 of them are positive. The 100 negatives almost don't matter, especially if you go in and read a couple of them and it's like you can tell, hey, I just do business with this many people. There's going to be some people unhappy. And you see the person bitching about it and the guy says, well... This this buyer 
responded to this ad with this picture, and this is the item delivered. It's not my fault that they didn't understand what they were buying. Here was my ad. I never claimed what they said I claimed or whatever, and it can all be verified. Like it could be with blockchain. See, that's the other thing. The blockchain could be set up within a virtual nation where you and I do business together. You pay me money to render services, and the blockchain can be altered by the arbitrator that we agreed with to send you your money back if the arbitrator feels that I didn't get my way. Well, what keeps the arbitrator honest? What I've said before. If arbitrators were rated on being fair by both sides of each situation, you would quickly end up with the most fair arbitrators being the most sought arbitrators because even the person that lost at times would would rank the arbitrator as being fair. I believe the contract was enforced now that I understand how it was done. And the hope would be that enforcement would be the last result, not the first attempt. See, that's how it works in the real world, if you want to call it that. You go to the state with a discrepancy, they immediately look to which side of this should I enforce. Whoever I back is who I bring my force to bear for. Where arbitration should be such that how do we rectify the situation? Because you're right, people generally are out to protect themselves. And if you create a system in a society where your karma goes down because you didn't live up to your obligations then you are really hurting yourself when you screw someone over. Could a system like this be abused? Sure it could. Of course it could. But could it be built to continuously improve? Could there be matters for recourse, etc.? Yes. And trust would have to be earned. And here's a little thing to bounce around in your bonnet today. If we built a virtual nation like this, could currency and capital begin to be the equivalent of the trust in the network. So that those with the greatest trust had the greatest implicit capital. And wouldn't that be a more interesting, more fair, and more valid monetary system than one that's simply based on who can get the most? What if you actually had to earn at least some portion of the capital that you had Not, not because anything's really changed, but simply because that capital is made prominent. Imagine if you, when you walked up to somebody in the real world and you went to shake their hand, when you shook their hand, like a pulse went through you and it said karma, negative five. Interesting. Interesting. Or when they sent you an email, it was already appended, negative five. Not good. Not good. Does that mean just the most popular people? I don't know. I think in the end, in a, in a, in a business-based society, which is what we have, a, a, a transaction-based society, that we could actually develop a capital system at least somewhat based on implicit trust. And trust has to be earned. And I don't care how big a company is, when it starts to lose trust, it loses trust fast. We've seen evidence of that. And if the system was designed with that in mind from the beginning, it might get really Really interesting, really, really fast. I'm just saying. Continuing to go away from the, the core of what we started with today and keep a lot of variety in today's show, we have a question now on livestock. Derek in Tennessee says, What's your feeling on the deep litter method compared to tractoring? I'm currently tractoring my layers, but I'm considering shifting over to a deep litter method. On one hand, the tractoring method provides fresh ground for the birds, 
but the deep litter method seems like it could be an organic matter-producing machine and an easier way to automate certain processes. I also assume the deep litter method will require me to buy more feed, but do you think it would affect egg and meat quality much? Thanks for any help you can give, Derek in Tennessee. Um, so deep litter for chickens is just we just keep adding litter into the chickens run in the chickens house and they keep tearing it up and they keep scratching it and they keep pooping it and they keep doing that. And if you're going to do this, it makes a lot of sense to have at least two runs. So you have them in run A for a certain amount of time in deep litter and then you shut one door of the coop and let them into run B. And you can do that and basically what you're doing is you're making compost with chickens. And you know, if you have layers and I don't get the feeling that these layers are like a production machine, like something that's like a business unit here. This it just this email, while it doesn't say it, has the feeling of like, these are birds for your personal production. Um, let's talk about, instead of is one better than the other, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the two? The deep litter method will produce a lot of organic material, but you'll have to move it to where you want it, where if you combine tr tr chicken tractoring, with providing them the same material as they're being tractored, i.e. Jeff Lodge chicken tractor on steroids, then the material is already where you want it when they're done with it. You can tractor them right through a system and be applying compost as they leave it behind. So it can actually be easier to, to put the material out there and bring the birds to the material in some ways. But with that system, it requires some manual turning. Where if you use a deep litter method, you can have long enough cycles that you really don't need to do much turning at all. Or you simply wait a couple weeks after the chickens have come off of a deep litter and you make one big pile out of it and you re-litter that area and start over. And by the time they come back to that, they're starting with fresh material. The first batch of material is probably composted without ever being turned. It'll be a slower compost, but it's so well processed by the chickens at that point that it doesn't really matter. And for most homesteaders, you're producing plenty of compost that way uh, for you know annual usage without having to buy any. So that makes sense. The downside now, we have to bring in the material for the litter. We have to go get it somewhere. So we're either using straw or wood chips or something. And we're bringing them food scraps and stuff like that and any kind of trimmings and trappings off the land. And that works. We're concentrating nutrient, which is not always the best thing. If you take nutrient and highly concentrate it to specific areas, you can end up with too much of it in one place. However, if we locate that at the right place, that top of the nutrient cycle going down grade can be spread out through passive means like earthworks and swales and, and what have you into other locations. So it can work as long as we think about where does all this excess nutrient that's locked up here go. So it's kind of the way to look at it. It's easier to use a deep litter run because all I do is open the door and close the door. And I can automate that, like you said. I can probably automate a system that I only have to check on the food and water once a week for my chickens. And I just decide whether they're on side A or side B for the next couple weeks or next four months, depending on what kind of system I run, how many birds, how many square feet, etc. I do not believe for a minute that you can't raise very happy, very healthy chickens in that system, uh, a coop-and-run style deep litter system. I, I believe you can. Uh, they're birds. They're, they're pretty simple creatures. I think a bird that has already experienced being out and about more of a free-range bird might have a harder time adapting to it than a tractored bird. Um, 
or a paddock shifted bird because they, 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 they've used to like some level of confinement. So when you start confining birds that haven't been confined, they don't, they don't dig that because they know now. And I think that's one of the biggest things with like coop and run style chickens that are happy. If they've never experienced anything else, they don't know. They don't know that there's this whole wide world out there. Now, the food bill is going to go up, and I do believe that it's almost impossible that some level of the egg quality won't decline. Because even though you're going to get a lot of bugs and stuff coming into the run and and what have you, let's face it, no grasshopper wants to be eaten by a chicken. So they generally don't go, oh, there's a big vacant space over there. Let me fly over there and land out in the middle of that field where all those birds are running around and see if one wants to eat me or not. So the amount of insects that they're going to consume and the amount of weed seeds and other things they get off the land are going to go down. And I believe that that has a big impact on the quality of eggs and also a lot of the green material that they're going to eat. So grasses and broadleaf weeds and things like that, since they're not getting as much of that fallen fruit, etc. Now you can bring a lot of that to them, but that's another input for you. So to me it would be, quote-unquote, better to tractor the birds or to paddock shift the birds with a lecture net, but there's no doubt that it would be less work to do coop and run. And if you're running a half a dozen birds uh, and you give them a pretty good amount of space, and I, I would say at least at least 10 feet per bird in your run. So if i got six birds, I want 60 square feet in my run, which really isn't that big. Uh, and I'd want to be bigger. But, I mean, that'd be your, your bare minimum. You want four square feet of floor space in your coop, ten square feet of space in your run, and one foot horizontal of roosting space in your coop for chickens. And as long as you give them that and give them maybe a little bit more in the run, you can go coop and run. What I don't like, I really don't like, is a single run and coop arrangement. We have one one run and one coop. I think that logistically it just is easier to move the birds back and forth and it gives you an opportunity for other things. It could be even an annual cycle where you actually garden a run. So we deep litter, 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 we deep litter. Okay, it's been a whole season. Now the birds go to the other side. We gather up the majority of that litter to compost We put in some garden beds. There's not a weed or an insect anywhere on that side. We garden there this year, and we run the deep litter on the other side. And we use compost, et cetera, elsewhere in our system. That's a standard old-style victory garden. Sometimes they're seasonal. So we run our spring crops here and our fall crops there or what have you. Works really well. And, again, I don't think you're going to have a problem with chickens. Just always remember with chickens, at 18 months – Their, their heyday as a heroic egg layer are over, and one year later you have a pretty much an expensive pet. The, so just have a plan for calls uh, in this system as well. Anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one we're cruising back around a little bit toward more of political, economic topics. Last week I answered a question on minimum wage and why it doesn't do what people think that it does. Uh, but Josh came and asked a question that basically said, well, there's got to be something in it for the state. What does the state get? And I want to read USC Prepper's response on the blog, and then give you my thoughts on that. At Josh, this post is simply looking at raising minimum wage from the state's perspective in order to try and answer at least somewhat what they might be thinking in an attempt to answer your question. I am fully aware there's a lot more bad that comes from raising the minimum wage 
that I put in this post. There is an immediate wealth effect that is short-lived, but there nonetheless, when people who are getting, say, $9 an hour suddenly are getting $15 an hour, they go out and spend money on things that were on the li their list of which, which they could have but never could afford. To the state, this generates an increase in sales tax revenue immediately, as well as some increase in income tax revenues. There's also an immediate and much more obvious increase in payroll taxes that is generated. The long-term negative effects of minimum wage does not affect the state very much. They don't produce anything anyway. The long-term uh, health of the economy, this is about as helpful as taking a sugar pill because market forces would normalize everything within a year or so anyway, but the new normal would mean all the debt the state has acquired over the past 15 years would be significantly lower value to pay back. So to recap, in the short term, the state gets more money, and in the long term, the state pays back a debt at a significantly lower rate. They may also justify it as being good for us, too, because anyone who has debt from a student loans to cars to mortgages will be paying off at the old rates. An example of this, I grew up in a neighborhood that was built in 1978. There were some old-timers who were original order olders, owners that still had their original mortgage from 78. They were paying less on their mortgage than they were on leases on their cars every month. Here's the problem. This would work great for a state if and only if they, meaning all governments, federal, state, local, suddenly started running a balanced budget. They would be able to pay back the debt in the past at lower rates, and they are not accruing new debt that would need to be paid at the new higher rates, that they could even use the initial spike much more on fiscal stability ground going forward. Unfortunately, we all know that will not be the case. I agree with almost everything there. I, I really do. There's there's more at this, though, like how does the state benefit? One uh, USC Prepper touched on there was um, payroll taxes. For many, the term payroll taxes just doesn't judge, you know, Uh, judge loose the brain cell necessary to connect it to what that is. Payroll taxes are Social Security. So there's no doubt that we have a demographic bomb right now. We have millions of baby boomers almost daily now retiring. The, the largest basketball ever to pass through the garden hose is passing right now. And every day, more and more boomers start collecting Social Security and less and less of them are in the system paying into the system. So... We also have less and less workers. So one way that we can get more Social Security dollars from the employer and the employee of today to pay the employee of yesterday because we didn't protect their money, we didn't invest their money, we spent their money and now it's gone, is to simply increase the total payrolls. So even if we lay people off, even if people go out of work, etc., and even if the government has to put more people on the dole, It doesn't come out of the dole that we think of with retirement Social Security benefits. So we get more money for that, period. And anybody that tries to say, hey, we need to use this money to do something else, we can just boo, hiss, you want to take the old people's money. So they get a way to stall, not stop, but stall off greater the impending disaster that is the Social Security Trust Fund that no one should trust. There's another thing at play here, though. This is one that almost no one even knows, and if they do, I guess they just don't talk about Many government workers in the federal government and quite a few state governments are also in government unions. I don't know if you knew this or not, but they have government unions for office jobs and things like that. You know, well, the union, a blue-collar steel mill worker, guys that run a computer every day are parts of unions. 
And we have all these other bad things about unions we could talk about, especially today's unions. But one of the things that many people don't know is that many of these government union workers have contracts where the government union workers' wages are tied to minimum wage, even though nobody in the union makes minimum wage. So you have a person whose raise is tied to the minimum. So you have a person making, let's say, $24 an hour. They don't get a raise because minimum wage goes to $15, bucks, which is a nice round number that will never happen. And they, they talk about it that way so that when they do 12 or something like that, which they eventually will do, the Republicans have, well, at least we held it back some. And the Democrats say, those damn guys, we should have given you guys a better raise, even though they're not the ones doing it. Because government people actually say this. Can't we give these people a raise? Go ahead. Give them a raise with your money. Oh, you don't have any. Right? Making the pizza guy that runs the pizza joint pay his employee higher isn't giving his employee a raise. It's giving the pizza guy a bill. But let's let that go. But when that government worker who's making $22 an hour is a union employee or a salary that's equivalent to $22 an hour, when the day that that minimum wage goes up, nothing happens. He makes the same money. Whole but. There's already contracts in place that stipulate what type of raise that these employees get annually, every five years, by tenure, etc. And many of those percentages are tied back against the minimum wage. Therefore, the next wage increase for these employees goes up significantly. Now, if you are a government bureaucrat, this works well for you because you get a raise. If you are part of the big government corporatocracy that wants to appease the government unions, this works well for you too because the, the, the people that you never said you were helping become the biggest benefactors. They actually get significant increases in their standard of living through their union contracts through the back door that you and they created together. So that's another thing that's in it for the state. Then there's the next thing. You may find this hard to believe, but your government wants you divided from your fellow Americans. There is no doubt that this is a very divisive issue, and the less educated a person is into economics, generally the greater they favor this type of a move. The less successful a person is in life, generally the more they favor this type of mood, unless they're in that little you know, cubicle of people that get their raise tied to the minimum wage and the indexing of inflation and the two combined, etc. Right? So unless they're there, a person that's re reasonably economically successful isn't usually hip on raising minimum wage because they understand the issue. And they've also succeeded enough. So your least educated, least successful demographic group views all of the people that say, hey, look, you don't understand as being evil bastards that want all the money for themselves. So the government gets a more divided people than they already had. The next thing is when they pass it, They get to sell the people on, look what we did for you. See, the free market doesn't work. We had to make them do it. Here's what I think is interesting. If you remove the minimum wage tomorrow, I think it would be a very, very short period of time before anybody that was truly gainfully employed worked for what used to be minimum wage and not because the wages would go down, wages would go up. Employers would have to think a little bit more. One of the things that people don't understand about minimum wage As is an employer at low-level labor, I can hire a shitload of people. And I can justify paying the minimum wage because it exists. 
So I hire a shitload of people at minimum wage, and that way their efficiencies are leaned out against each other. And I can handle turnover because I have more than I need, and I work a part-time, and blah, blah, blah. Okay? If there's no minimum wage, and two guys come in, and one's a lot better than the other, and both of them want $14 an hour, who do you think I'm going to hire? Am I going to hire the guy that's a lot better for $14 an hour, or am I going to offer the guy that sucks eight? Which one do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to have to start thinking more about getting higher quality employees and paying more for them because the government hasn't created an artificial floor that says to people, unless I really need you, this is what you get. And I got to tell you, I always fall back to this on this debate. I worked one job for minimum wage in my life. It was for Burger King when I was 14 years old and it lasted two weeks and I quit. Every other job that I've ever had paid greater than whatever minimum wage was at the time simply because I was willing to work hard. I made a good case for myself. I'm talking as a 16-year-old kid, guys. right? Made a good case for myself being able to do that and then delivered on what I promised. So if I, growing up in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, at 16, can get a, a seasonal job working for a turkey farm, cleaning heads out of a trough, which was one of my first jobs as a young man. If I can get that job, and I can get them to pay me what was $2.50 an hour over minimum wage, at a time when minimum wage was like three and change, then there's no reason that anybody else can't do that. There's an artificial floor that's created by the entire concept of a minimum wage. And you, you have so many people out there going, I'm not getting paid what I'm worth. Well, the reality is a lot of people on minimum wage are being paid far more than the value they're delivering. And there's a lot of people who are being paid far less than the value they're delivering. And when we create artificial floors, artificial raises, artificial benchmarks, artificial qualifying timelines to get certain promotions or monies, what we create is an apathy because the people in the workforce realize this is what I'm going to get no matter what I do. Because there's a lot of jobs out there you can bust ass for six months on minimum wage. They don't give you a raise. And you look around and there's three other people that are being lazy sons of bitches on minimum wage get the same money you are. Why work much harder? You'll only do it for so long before either you won't see the opportunity internally or you'll seek the opportunity externally. You'll either just back off and I don't need to work any harder than this or you'll say, I'm still going to do this, but I'm going to do it for somebody else that appreciates me. We need more, not less of that. What the state gets is control. That's what the state gets from minimum wage as a concept. Whether they raise it, lower it, increase it, decrease it, doesn't matter. What they get when they set these artificial expectations, the big issue is control. Like I said, all of this ties so nicely into the last story of today. Real quick little side note here, though. Rob sent me this email. He said, Hi, Jack. I just wanted to drop you a quick line to praise Dr. Lewis and Janet from Doctors Nutrition. Thank you for the awesome interviews from them and others. I plan on following, I, I followed the recommendation starting over one year ago and I'm now having fantastic results. Please have them on again soon. Thank you for all you do. Sincerely, Rob in Michigan. Um, I, I want to tell you, if you haven't heard the interviews with Doctors Nutrition, you should go back and link, listen to them. I will put up the links today. Uh, we will get them on the air again sometime soon. 
with them, it's, it's like, what do we talk about? What, do, what kind of subject can we go into other than just what their practice entails and what they do? Because no matter how much I like someone, I will not turn TSP into an infomercial for myself, let alone a guest. So it's always want to make sure I come up with like a, a topic of health issues that we can talk about instead of just explain your process. So that, that's one of my things there uh, with making sure I, I find good subject matter when I bring uh, Dr. Lewis and uh, Janet on. But my wife's been on their protocol now for quite a while, and she is very happy with her results. And I have to tell you that of all the people I've worked with, these are the ones that I meet a couple, and one or the other was not in on it. Like they like so and so, you know, she, she listens or he listens, and I don't really care. And and a lot of times there's even a little bit, you know, like we have all these chickens because of you or whatever. This is the one where the reluctant spouse ends up being the one that does it, and they're won over. I've had more than one person's wife say to me, I love you now. I didn't like you before. We found these people because of you, and they've changed my life. They use a very, very scientific approach, and they do offer a discount on their supplements to members of the support brigade. I also wanted to mention this today to let you know that I have some updates to do to the MSB, and one is updating the way you get your discount from them. And in, until I get that done, like if you wanted to get the discounts today, give them a call, but I should have that updated this week. Um, but they're just fantastic people, and uh, my wife really has gotten a lot out of working with them. And, again, I am impressed with the scientific level of what they bring to the table with their recommendations of supplements. I'm also very impressed with Dr. Lewis when he looks at lab results, and I've sat in on a call or two with my wife with them to just to hear how he handles things, and says, when you see a range and it says normal, well, that's you, me, and every other person in the line at the state fair is normal, unless they're way out of bounds, low or high. But we want you as optimum. And that's how they take the approach. So if you've, if you've got anything going on in your life, I'm not promising they can help everybody, but I think they're worth giving a shot to. And the first thing, you just so you know, if you've not heard of these folks before, again, Doctors Nutrition out of East Texas, first thing they're going to have you do is go locally to a place to have a full blood workup done lab results. And then they're going to go over those with you and, and, and figure out where improvements can be made. And they do that very inexpensively with a direct relationship with these different lab companies. And they make nothing off the lab results. That's just so that they can make concrete recommendations. So certainly uh, check out Doctors Nutrition. And, again, I will have links to the shows that they've been on in the past. Uh, next, we're going to talk a little bit, sort of, kind of, in a way, but not really about the presidential election. I've given some predictions as to who you know I think are the outsiders that might come in and actually win the nominations. Because specifically on the on the Republican side, I think the people that are being talked about a lot right now are not going to be the nominee. Uh, my still my my guy, that I think is going to come out and and join the race and probably end up being our nominee, is Scott Walker. Uh, I'm neither happy nor sad about that. They're all freaking politicians that break their oath to the Constitution, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but that's who I think it's going to be. And I said if the left nominates Hillary Clinton, she's dramatically unelectable. And it's pretty much a white flag the way Romney was last time uh, for the Republicans. They didn't want the It was somebody else's turn at that. They have these cycles they run. It's Macho Man Savage and, and Hulk Hogan in a lot of ways. Well, um Justin had said that he thinks the outsider that would come in might be General Petraeus. 
So he says, breaking news for Jack. Look below, I guess Petraeus is not going to be the game changer for the election. Put that in the USC uh, prepper was wrong file for me. Laugh out loud. Um, anyway, so here's the story that he sent me. Former CIA director David Petraeus was sentenced to two years probation and ordered to pay a $100,000 fine after admitting to showing classified information to his biographer, uh, acting U.S. Attorney Jill Westmoreland said in a statement, quote, I want to take this opportunity to apologize for the pain my actions have caused, General Petraeus said, before being sentenced. Petraeus resigned in November of 2012 as director of the Central Intelligence Agency after a romantic relationship with his biographer, Paula Broadwell, became public. Petraeus previously oversaw operations in Afghanistan and Iraq and at one time was touted as a potential presidential candidate. Get complete coverage of breaking news on CNN TV, CNN Mobile, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so here's my deal with this. There's a couple things here that are just pattern recognition and typical bullshit. Number one, let me read you what Mr. Petraeus said is an apology. I want to take this opportunity to apologize for any pain my actions have caused. Maybe the guy still is a potential political candidate because that is a political uh, political apology. How about I want to take this opportunity to apologize for screwing over the American people, breaking the trust I had with them, and and, and abusing my my power as the director of CIA by leaking classified information to some chick I was hooking up with and cheating on my wife with. No, no, no. Not I want to apologize for what I did. I want to apologize for the pain my actions have caused. Hopefully your wife forgives you that, because most of us, you didn't cause us any pain. We already know you guys are all thieves and liars and oath breakers. How about apologizing for what you did? All of you people in government, whenever you get nailed, whenever you get caught, you apologize for anybody I might have hurt, anybody who was upset, any misunderstanding. How about I'm sorry I was a scumbag? How about that? But no, don't expect that. That's just one little pattern recognition for you here. But here's the bigger one. People like this are not subject to the same type of justice that the rest of humanity is. We have whistleblowers come out and publicly say, the government is lying to you and here's proof. And we have calls for their heads. We have calls for them to be executed. They have to run away to foreign countries and seek asylum in, 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 in embassies. This man was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency and disclosed classified information to a chick he was having an adulterous affair with, and he gets two years of probation. You wouldn't get two years of probation if you took a Ford off the, the, the car lot for a joyride and were accused of grand theft auto, even if you really did plan to bring it back. You'd get more than two years of probation. This man had the trust and faith of the American people as both a general in the United States Army and the director of the CIA. He violated that trust. He gets two years of probation. He gets two years of probation. Edward Snowden comes out and tells you the United States government is lying to you. The United States government is, is collecting information. They're publicly stating they're not. The United States government is doing these things to you they claim not to be. Here is the proof that they're doing it. 
And we have people in Congress that call for the man to be executed. This man, who apologizes for the pain that his actions may have caused, gets two years of probation. Remember we talked about social justice? And I talked about how the term is, is, is largely misunderstood and abused. And, 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 and frankly, a lot of people that, that are non-producers that, that call for social justice want it at somebody else's expense. And that's not justice either. But people that use the word do have a point in certain instances. This is one of them. This is one. This is an example of justice being different for people based on their class. I guarantee you, if you got a hold of some information that was classified that you weren't supposed to have, and you disclosed it in a manner in keeping with what David Petraeus did here, that you'd get a little bit more than two years of probation. I'm just saying. Now, does that mean he should have gotten more or you should have gotten less? I'll leave that to you to decide. But in the end, I think if the actions are the same for the same motivations, the justice for both sides should be the same. Not one gets a lot more. One goes to prison for 20 years. One has congressmen calling for their execution, etc. And one gets, bad boy, go home, be good, talk to your probation officer once a month. Okay, as long as you do that, this will all go away eventually. By the way, you can go out and continue to make millions of dollars doing speaking engagements and other things like that. And frankly, pretty soon everybody will just forget all about this. And you can keep that big fat ass retirement you got from your military service. And even though you use your military credentials to get a job inside the the, the Pentagon where you were chested to, you know, and you, you violate whatever. Okay, right. And, and, and we'll, we'll call a soldier who makes an untrue statement about what country he was uh, sent to, uh, someone who's committed stolen valor. But a general violates the trust of the American people because he's hooked up with a chick and cheating on his wife. What do we call that? I'm just saying, let's take another one. Let's go with the permaculture one here. I, I like this idea. I don't know if it's exactly the, the recipe I would use. Um, but this is from Ed. Ed says, Hi, Jack. Would you provide alternative food sources for wildlife to diminish pressure on plants we are interested in, or would that make the problem worse by attracting more wildlife? Background. My home backs up to a large conservation area. Deer do not visit me. They live here. During the day, they browse my neighbor's yard, a foreclosed property. At night, they move 50 to 100 feet into the tree line, in warmer months, they tuck themselves in for the night on my front lawn. My solution to the HOA and wildlife pressure, I came up with food forest pods. Each pod is a nine-foot circle surrounded by a four-foot four foot fence. In the middle of the pod is a fruit tree or a nut tree surrounding it. But still within the fence circle, we have four support species. One honey locust, one black locust, one mimosa, and one berry bush, like blackberry, raspberry, blueberry, or autumn olive. Additional plants include comfrey and field peas and maybe more later. The idea is the deer will not jump the fence because it's a small space too crowded in here, and the fence area also keeps the mess contained and neat enough to be in plain view and not upset the blue hair ladies. 
As the podcast develop, as the pod develops, the bushes would provide browsing above and through the fence, taking pressure off a productive tree in the center. The plantings, I have planted nine fruit trees for a total of nine pods. I'm about to finish the planting of 36 support species to go with them this weekend. I also just created a 40-foot-long, 8-foot-wide ledge where I had to dump a large amount of subsoil and boulders. At the very edge, I'm planting five autumn olives, and I'm seeding the steep downgrade with field peas and oats to start improving the soil and control erosion. The question concern, I'm afraid all these berries, oats, and field peas, instead of taking pressure off the main plants, will attack much larger deer population. Uh, we also have all sorts of critters, big and small, including bears. Is this a reasonable strategy, or am I making the problem bigger? Any suggestions? I think it actually sounds like it really would work. I don't know about cramming a honey locust, a black locust, and a mimosa into a nine-foot circle, unless it's your plan to really pollard these things heavily. Uh, a honey locust can grow to be a tree, you know, over a hundred feet tall, with a trunk as big around as uh, as you and me and our and and, and your brother. I um, mean, these is a big tree, and black locusts can get big too, but honey locusts. Uh, if you've been to any of the cities where they use them as landscaping trees, the scene of honey locust is 20 years old. Um, it, they get to be a big, substantial tree. Mimosas are kind of bushy-like, but they get pretty big, too. So you might have overstacked the legume trees in there, but you can always, if they get out of hand, just you know, coppice them to the ground to cut them down. So I, I wouldn't hesitate to do this, honestly. Uh, you might actually cram a couple more berry bushes in there. Uh, and I do think it'll work. I don't see a deer looking at a nine-foot circular fence and going, "Yeah, I'm gonna jump me up in there." I, they don't—they don't like that confined feeling at all. Um, it might be something you want to put one or two in first and, and see how they work, but yeah, it's not that big of an investment. It's got to be better than doing nothing as far as not planting anything, or it's got to be better than um, just putting the fruit trees out there. Yeah, because they're gonna browse those things on you. I don't know if you've done the math, um, but uh, it might be more fence than you expect. But unless something's wrong with my math, um, a nine-foot circle is going to have a circumference of about 28 feet. Uh, and, and 28 times 9, about 250, 252 feet. So that's 200 feet of fence to make your nine circles. I don't think it's a problem. I just think that you need to... Consider that, and in you know you probably are looking at at least four T posts, and so that's all just something to consider there. Um, as far as like the oats and field peas and stuff like that, if they're outside of your pods, when you're talking about on ledges and stuff, uh, they're probably going to just eat that. Um, as far as attracting more deer, um, I don't think so. I mean, it sounds like you have a very healthy population of deer. And if they're able to browse as they go by, that's what they're going to do. Um, you already, ha I mean, like you said, they live there. So it's not like having a little bit more browse to, to, to get at is really going to have a, a marked effect on what they're doing. One thing I will say that you want to do here is you really want to think about access. When we do any kind of permaculture design or property assessment, we think about three primary things are water, access, and structure. 
uh, structure being buildings, houses, and things like that, water being obvious, and access. When we think about it at a property level, we think about things like how would you get a piece of equipment in here or a, um, a, a vehicle in, or how would you move your animals around, etc. Well, in this case, access is to the fruit tree for pruning and harvest and to get inside there. So you need to think about making sure you have an easy way to open that and get in and still have it be secure enough. Because if you just like wire it all up, uh, it could be a bit of a problem. I guess at four feet, you could have something to kind of step over you know, on both sides of it. I, I would shy against that. I would want to be able to open this thing up, get in there, perform maintenance, chop and drop, and things like that. Otherwise, I think it's a pretty cool idea. I think it's a pretty cool idea, and I, I think it's actually a temporary solution uh, to a long-term non-problem. Go with full-size fruit trees, not dwarfs. Get them up above the browse line, and then you can just open it up. They're you know you're, they're not going to be browsing nine feet up. So if you go with full-size trees with this thing, eventually. The, the fruit trees overtake your locusts, your mimosa, etc. You keep coppicing them. You keep putting them to the ground until they give up the ghost, so to speak, and die. And you end up with trees that are up above the deer. So that's kind of how I would take the long-term approach to this. And, and, you know, how blue are the blue hairs? Are they really going to let this go? Who knows? I'm not sure. You, you live there, I don't. So this next one came to me from Justin, and actually came from me from a lot of you guys. Uh, there's a lot of chatter about this one. Um, got glyphosate? Find out. Allegedly, this is the first test available for consumers for determining glyphosate levels in tap water, urine, or breast milk. And there's a link here that we can go read about it. I'm going to read the article to you. I think it's really interesting that this is available. World's first public testing for Monsanto's glyphosate begins today. Contact Kathleen Paul, and there's some information there. Um, OCA joins Feed the World project to offer testing that could lead to a ban on the ground, on Roundup herbicide. Finland, Minnesota, the Organic Consumers Association today, in conjunction with the Feed the World project, launched the first glyphosate testing for the general public. The project, with specific focus on women and children in the United States, is offering first-ever validated LCMS-MS glyphosate testing for urine, water, and soon breast milk. Quote, for decades now, the public has been exposed unknowingly and against their will to glyphosate, despite mounting evidence that this key active ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup herbicide is harmful to human health and the environment, said Ronnie Cummings, OCA's internal director. Monsanto has been given a free pass to expose the public to this dangerous chemical because individuals until now have been unable to go to their doctor or local water testing company and find out if the chemicals accumulate in their bodies or is present in their drinking water. The testing OCA, Feed the World, and many other organizations will begin offering today will allow everyone who wants to know whether or not and to what extent they've personally been exposed to glyphosate. We expect that once the public learns how widespread the exposure has been and how it has personally invaded the bodies and homes in the context of recent report from the World Health Organization that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen, public pressure will eventually force governments worldwide to finally bound Roundup. The OCA and Feed the World hope the testing will convince the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to ban glyphosate, which is currently up for review in 2015. 
The goal of the testing is to inform the public and promote a worldwide ban on glyphosate. According to the recent New York Times report, the EPA first declared glyphosate a human carcinogen in 1985, but later, under pressure from the biotech agency, reversed that decision. Starting to see the patterns, guys. Last year, a U.S. Department of Agricultural representative said the USDA does not test food for glyphosate residues because it's too expensive. They got a lot of your money to waste on things, but testing food to see if it's got contamination is too expensive. Okay, We need to make sure that we, we do everything we can to take small growers out of production because they represent a danger. But, you know, testing corn and soy once in a while for glyphosate levels, that's too expensive. Anyway, a growing number of scientists are risking, are risking attack by the biotech industry by releasing studies that link glyphosate to cancer, kidney and liver failure, birth defects, infertility, increased risk of allergies and digestive disorders, among other chronic illnesses. We hope at the very least states and eventually the federal government will require mandatory labeling of foods containing genetically modified organisms, 84% of which are grown with glyphosate and likely contain glyphosate residues, Cummins said. But ultimately, this dangerous chemical must be banned. In 2013, El Salvador banned glyphosate after the chemical was linked to deaths in thousands of agricultural workers from chronic kidney disease. But what do they know? They're El Salvador. Let me tell you what I like about this. Ban or not to ban, I, I don't even want to get into that debate at this point. Um, that's clearly showing an agenda, which is probably better than, than hiding one. But at $119, bucks, i am probably going to get it done. I'd like to know. And I'd like anybody else that does this to uh, to let us know, like, Especially those of you who are still eating corn chips and stuff like that, that are still eating the, the foods that we know are genetically modified. This is what I'd actually like to send out a challenge uh, here. I have a lot of you guys email me from the other side of this debate. GMOs are safe. Glyphosate is safe. It's, you're stupid. You don't know any better. We, they've already looked at this. There's nothing to worry about. Why aren't people dropping over dead everywhere, et cetera? Uh, you know, doesn't build up in the body. All time, you are the people that I'd like to see. You guys plunk down 119 bucks to prove Jack wrong. That are eating corn and soy and all of these high fructose corn syrup products. Go get the test done and then let us see your results. Don't tell me what they were. Let me see the lab results. And and, and let's see if you find out that this stuff's in your body. If you're still okay with it. Or if you feel violated, because I think that's what OCA is looking to do here is to get people to understand that this does pertain to you. And I'll look at it this way. Let's say, let's say that one-tenth of one percent of the population of the United States either gets their urine for women that are lactating breast milk or their well water or, or, or city water tested for this, just one-tenth of one percent. That'd be over 300,000 test results. 300 million people, one percent. You know, three million, ten divided by three million, 300,000 test results. That's more than any government agency. That's more than any pharmaceutical company. That's more than any independent testing agency would ever do. Now, I think we'd get a pretty good picture of things if one-tenth of one percent of the population of the United States would engage in this testing. I have a feeling that that's not too far off of what might not happen over the next four or five years. I have a feeling an awful lot of people 
who are in alternative health care. And I don't necessarily mean Reiki practitioners and stuff like that. I mean chiropractors. People like Dr. Lewis that uses lab work might say, hey, you know what, it might be worth checking this out. Um, and it might be very interesting to find out what the glyphosate levels in the average American are. It might be very interesting to find out what they are in different water sources. I mean, I can see somebody doing a Kickstarter to just test water from four different sources in all 50 states with this, just to get the results. I'd back that one, wouldn't you? Just for access to the information in the reports? Um, that's, that's an interesting, simple idea. That's real easy to do. How much, you know, one from a well source, one from a city water source, one from a water tower source. You know, somebody get that and make that a little more sophisticated. That, that'd be interesting to see, wouldn't it? How much of this stuff is really in our bodies? How much of it's really in our food? There's a, there's a lot of ways this thing can be leveraged. And that's what I like about it is it puts the power of information into the hands of people that are willing to spend a little bit of money to get it. And I know for some people, a hundred bucks is a lot of money. But when it comes right down to it for your health, I mean, and you want to know, and there's enough people that can spend 120 bucks on this to get some information. And I, my my one concern is the people that are most predisposed to go ahead and pay the money to get this done are probably the people on the best diets already. They're, they're the people that are already eating grass-fed beef and avoiding all these toxins. So we need some people that are living the mainstream American lifestyle and eating what the government would call a healthy diet, following the food plate, because it's not a pyramid anymore. We spent $9 million to turn a pyramid into a plate. right? People that are following the food plate from the USDA right, uh, to get tested in this. I'd like to really know. It'd be It'd be really interesting to find out. I wonder what Dr. McCullough will want to do with this. Notice I said a lot of these kind of tie together, and the lies that have been put out about glyphosate are many, and Dr. Oz being attacked for it and all. Would it be interesting if you know a, a, a practitioner like Mercola just started having a recommendation to his substantial number of people that pay attention to what he has to say, that go get tested for this and send us your results? See, that, that's how I think this gets leveraged, is you get people that already have a certain amount of clout, but when they bring the information out, it's not, well, it's the, the perception bias or cognitive dissonance or whatever, or they're just saying that to sell more pills or whatever. When you have hardcore laboratory results, it's hard to argue with. It makes me think of one of my favorite quotes, we're all, all entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. Right. So this is fact-based, evidence-based stuff here. So um, anyone that's willing to do this, I'd, I'd very much like you to, to make the results known, uh, including a basic synopsis of what your diet is. And I'd like to see somebody actually put together some information-sharing clearinghouse where you know the actual results can be uploaded so that they're verifiable. Because I, I do think, there, just to be fair to the other side, I think there's people who would I got a test and I was 500 million points high and my kid has diabetes because of this. And blah, I mean, and, and never even had a test done. That does, the other side of, of these things is there are hypochondriac people and there are sensationalist people in the alternative health industry that go way to the other extreme. That's why I like this. It's a measurable, testable, repeatable result in a laboratory. And the fact that it's publicly available, very, very cool. 
So I'd like your comments on this one. Let me go to the last story now. This is one that ties into a lot of the socioeconomic, geopolitical stuff that we talked about today. And I know I've seen this before, and I know I've read this before, and I may have even covered it before. This is from um, December of 2014, so a few months ago, right? Well, almost half a year. Think about that. Let that sink in. Tick tock. Uh, but David Kane writes this. Well, I'm here working in the world again. I found myself a well... Well, first of all, I didn't give you the title. I'm sorry, guys. Your lifestyle has already been designed. The real reason for the 40-hour work week. Now, what I've told you is if you don't design your lifestyle, somebody else will. And what he's telling you is they've already done it. Well, that's what I meant, so that's why I like it. Anyway, David Kane says, Well, I'm in the working world again. I found myself a well-paying gig in the engineering industry, and life finally feels like it's returning to normal after nine months of traveling. Because I'd been living quite a different lifestyle while I was away, this sudden transition to nine-to-five existence has exposed something about it that I overlooked before. Since the moment I was offered the job, I've been markedly more careless with money. Not stupid, just a little quick to pull out my wallet. A small example, I'm now buying expensive coffees again, even though they aren't nearly as good as New Zealand's exceptional flat whites, and I don't get to savor the experience of drinking them on a sunny cafe patio. When I was away, these purchases were left off-handed, and I enjoyed them more. I'm not talking about big, extravagant purchases. I'm talking about small-scale, casual, promiscuous spending on stuff that doesn't really add a whole lot to my life. I won't actually get paid for another two weeks. In hindsight, I think I've always done this when I've been well-employed, spending happily during the flush times, having spent nine months living in a no-income backpacking lifestyle. I can't help but be a little more aware of this phenomenon as it happens. I suppose I do it because I feel... I've regained a certain stature. Now that I am again amply paid professional, which seems to entitle me to a certain level of wastefulness, there is a curious feeling of power you get when you drop a couple of 20s without a trace of critical thinking. It feels good to exercise that power of the dollar when you know it will grow back pretty quickly anyway. <clears throat> What I'm doing isn't unusual at all. Everyone else seems to do this. In fact, I think I've only returned to the normal consumer mentality after having spent some time away from it. One of the most surprising discoveries I made during my trip was that I spent much less per month traveling foreign countries, including countries more expensive than Canada, than I did as a working, a regular working Joe back home. I had much more free time. I was always visiting some of the most beautiful places in the world. I was meeting new people left and right. I was calm and peaceful and otherwise having an unforgettable time. And somehow it cost me much less than my humble 9-to-5 lifestyle here in one of Canada's least expensive cities. It seems I got much more time for my dollar when I was traveling. Why? A culture of unnecessaries. Here in the West, a lifestyle of unnecessary spending has been deliberately cultivated and nourished in the public by big business. Companies in all kinds of industries have a huge stake in the public's penchant to be careless with their money. They will seek to encourage the public's habit of casual, non-essential spending whenever they can. In the documentary, The Corporation, a marketing psychologist discussed one of the methods she used to increase sales. Her staff carried out a study on what effective on what effect the nagging of children had on their parents' likelihood of buying a toy for them. 
they found out that 20 to 40% of the purchases of their toys would not have occurred if the child didn't nag its parents. One of our four visits to theme parks would not have taken place. Uh, one in four of our visits to theme parks would not even have taken place. They used these studies to market their products directly to children, encouraging them to nag their parents to buy. This marketing campaign alone represents many millions of dollars that were spent because of the demand that was completely manufactured. This is only one small example of something that's been going on for a very long time. Big companies didn't make their millions earnestly promoting the virtues of their products. They made it by creating a culture of hundreds of millions of people that buy way more than they need and try to chase away any dissatisfaction with money. We buy stuff to cheer ourselves up, to keep up with the Joneses, to fulfill childhood vision of what our adulthood would be like to broadcast our status to the world and for a lot of other psychological reasons that have very little to do with how useful the product really is. How much stuff is in your basement or garage that you haven't used in a year? The real reason for the 40-hour work week. The ultimate tool for corporations to sustain a culture of this sort of develop this sort is to develop the 40-hour work week as the normal lifestyle. Under these working conditions, people have build uh, have to build a life in the evenings and on weekends. This arrangement makes us naturally more inclined to spend heavily on entertainment and conveniences because our free time is so scarce. I've only been back at work a few days, but I'm I'm already noticing that the more wholesome activities are quickly dropping out of my life: walking, exercising, reading, meditating, and extra writing. This one conspicuous similarity between these activities and is that they cost me little to no money, but they take time. Suddenly, I have a lot more money and a lot less time, which means I have a lot more in common with the typical working North American than I did a few months ago. While I was abroad, I wouldn't have thought twice about spending the day wandering through the national park or reading a book on a beach for a few hours. Now that kind of stuff feels like it's out of the question. Doing either one would take most of my precious weekend days. The last thing I want to do when I get home from work is exercise. It's also the last thing I want to do after dinner, before bed, or as soon as I wake up. And that's really all the time I have on a weekday. This seems like a problem with a simple answer. Work less. I'd have so much more time. I've already proven to myself that I can live a fulfilling lifestyle with less than I make right now. Unfortunately, this is close to impossible in my industry and most others. You work 40-plus hours or you work zero. My clients and contractors are form firmly entrenched in the standard workday culture. So it isn't practical to ask them not to ask anything of me after 1 p.m., even if I could convince my employer not to. The eight-hour workday developed during the Industrial Revolution in Britain in the 19th century as a respite for many factory workers who were being exploited with 14- to 16-hour workdays. As technologies and methods advanced, workers in all industries became able to produce much more value in a shorter amount of time. You would think this would lead to shorter workdays. But the eight-hour workday is too profitable for big business, not because of the amount of work people get done in eight hours. The average office worker gets less than three hours of actual work done in eight hours. I know that's true. I've employed them. But because it makes for such a purchase-happy public, keeping free time scarce means people pay a lot more for convenience, gratification, and any other relief that they can buy. It keeps them watching television and its commercials. It keeps them un unambiguous outside work. 
unambitious outside of work. We've been led into a culture that has engineered to leave us tired, hungry for indulgence, willing to pay a lot for convenience and entertainment, and most importantly, vaguely dissatisfied with our lives so that we continue wanting things that we don't have. We buy so much because it always seems like something is still missing. Western economies, particularly that of the United States, have been built in a very calculated manner on gratification, addiction, and unnecessary spending. We spend to cheer ourselves up, to reward ourselves, to celebrate, to fix problems, to elevate our status, and to alleviate boredom. Can you imagine what would happen if all Americans stopped buying so much unnecessary fluff that doesn't add a lot to our lasting value of our lives? The economy would collapse and never recover. All of America's well-publicized problems, including obesity, depression, pollution, and corruption, are what it costs to create and sustain a trillion-dollar economy. For the economy to be healthy, America has to remain unhealthy. Healthy, happy people don't feel like they need much. They don't already have. And that means they don't buy a lot of junk, don't need to be entertained as much, they don't end up watching a lot of commercials. The culture of the eight-hour workday is a big business, most powerful tool for keeping people in the same dissatisfied state where they answer to every problem is to buy something. You may have heard of it. Uh, you may have heard of Parkinson's law. It is often used as a reference to time usage. The more time you've been given to do something, the more time it will take you to do it. It's amazing how much you can get done in 20 minutes if 20 minutes is all you have. But if you have all afternoon, it would probably take way longer. Most of us treat money this way. The more we make, the more we spend. It's not that we suddenly need to buy more just because we make more, only that we can simply we simply can, so we do. In fact, it's quite difficult for us to avoid increasing our standard of living or at least our rate of spending every time we get a raise. I don't think it's necessary to shun the whole ugly system to go live in the woods pretending to be a deaf mute as Holden Caulfield often fantasized. We could certainly do well to understand what big commerce really wants us to be. They've been working for decades to create millions of ideal consumers, and they have succeeded. Unless you're a real anomaly, your lifestyle has already been designed. The perfect customer is dissatisfied, but hopeful. Uninterested in serious personal development, highly habituated to television, working full-time, earning a fair amount, indulging during their free time, and somehow just getting by. Is this you? Two weeks ago I would have said, hell no, that's not me. But if all my weeks were like this one has been, that might be wishful thinking. Uh, fantastic article. Fantastic article. So much here. I think the scariest thing is, is a statement made in here is a fact that is a fact. If everybody in America woke up to the hallucination that we're under, that we can fix our unhappiness, our unhealthiness, etc., by buying crap and stopped, the economy as we know it would collapse and it would never recover. Which means the solution to life's problems in the Western world is economic collapse. And what it would take to make that work. I, if you doubt this, I want you to think about something. Go into a Walmart or any other major store and just take a walk around and look at all the things that are for sale. And then maybe on a busy day, like a Saturday, when everybody has free time, so they spend it inside a store spending the money they worked all week for, just saying. And stand up at the cash register and watch what people are buying. And start asking yourself, how much need is there for this? 
And how much does it really do for the people buying it? I mean, there's a lot of things you don't need that you, you still want, and they, they still give you a fair amount of enjoyment and service and happiness. You know, do I need a nice big desk to do my podcast at? No, I used to do it in a car. So I don't need a big desk. But it gives me a lot of utility. I've got two computer monitors on it. I've got my, my lighting for my video work. I've got places for all my, all the papers for my interviews so I can spread out and, and what have you. And it does a good job for me. And, and that makes sense. And I bought it in 2011 and I have no plans to buy a new one anytime soon. I bought a big, heavy duty, tough ass desk to do my work on. So yes, that, was a valid purchase. But how much crap does the average American buy? How much stuff sits in boxes after a move and never gets unpacked? How much useless garbage does the average American spend money on? And, and it's easy to say, but then you have to think about what would it mean if we stopped? I don't even mean dramatic, radical change uh, in the way that normally you would think of it. What if every American family just said, we're going to evaluate our spending and we're going to cut 2% of our spending, our discretionary spending, by not buying stuff we don't need or really want or really get much out of, just 2%. So you're not cutting your housing, you know, other than maybe some people would because they'd realize I don't have as much junk anymore, but you still live in the same kind of house, right? You still drive the same kind of car. You still have a computer and an iPhone. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just the average American family, you know, mom, dad, two kids, 2.3 kids, I think is the average, that just said, you know, we're just going to look at everything we spend beyond basic food and dinner, right? You know, I'm not about, so that includes eating out, um, toys, plastic crap, junk, stuff that nobody really needs, stuff made in China shipped over here on boats and steel containers that make a one-way trip because it's cheaper to give the container away than bring it back to China because we buy so much of their garbage. Just that. That would probably create an economic collapse. So what if we got radical and really said, you know what? America's going to go back to spend. It's a saving money versus spending it. We're going to stop borrowing money to buy things that we don't. What if you? What if 10% of Americans just followed the economic plan that I promote? 10% of your money in silver and gold, not wasting on plastic crap. Cut up and shred the credit cards. If you really need one for car rentals, get one, put it away in a glass case, and never use it except for car rentals. What if, what if we did that? Spend your money on education, knowledge, development, on your own property, developing your own systems, your own land, your own way to feed yourself, create small businesses, deliver real value. Like, that sounds great, but what would it do to our current economy? It would obliterate it. It would slaughter. It would be a huge, tumultuous growing pain. How much of our wealth in, in the form of dollars is tied into this system? Why do you think it's so hard to get people to change? Why do you think the, the best way to get somebody to not understand something is to make a contingent upon their employment that they not understand it? They'll never understand it. They'll make sure they don't. And how much control is really enacted by a system like this? I said this would come full circle. Let's go back to the opening story. Media bias. The lady finally left the news, and she's on her own now. I said, why don't more people do it? Because the media has giant companies 
that run payroll departments that can pay us a 40-hour-a-week salary so we have the stability of that income. And going out and producing your own independent dramas for every person that makes a dollar, 10 will fail to make a penny. It's a tough business to be in, especially getting started out. I mean, I've built a business in alternative information. I know how hard it is. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication. you got to love what you do. you got to believe in it. And I have to come out here and do this five days a week every day. I have to bust my ass and bring it or my business would falter. And I have to do it on my own without health care benefits from an employer and matching Social Security. And I have to. It's, it's hard. It's much more free. But it's a, there's this gap. It's scary to walk away. It's very scary. So not only does the 40-hour work week, not only is the concept of the eight. Now, I want you to understand the 40 doesn't even mean anything. Because if you're working 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week or 62 hours a week or 71 hours a week, you're part of this formula. You, the fact that you come in an hour early or stay an hour late doesn't change the formula. The formula is the bulk of your day is occupied with a job that you could probably do in less time. And your employer would be better off if you took less time to get it done. And you'd be better off if you took less time to get it done. And you could be paid close to the same rate and have more free time. There's, there's no reason that the United States couldn't change our paradigm by this radical concept. 32-hour work week. Four times eight. Four-day work week. Fridays are gone. Fridays become part of the weekend. Oh my God, everything would be destroyed. It kind of sort of would at first. We'd adapt to it. It would be a different version of what we're doing now. We'd have more free time. They'd probably raise wages. Productivity would probably equalize. There's plenty of waste in that system. And we'd probably end up with this problem actually being worse if we just did it that way. It's not systemic, the change. But when you take people and say, okay, I want you to think about this, right? The, the, the work week, the way this works out, especially when you have kids in school age or before school age is even harder. Wake up, and, 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 5.30, 6 o'clock, whatever time you get up, 4.45, some of you. Tired, worn out, just, ugh, I got to get going. I gotta get the kids up, get them dressed, they're complaining, put your shoes on, why? Oh, put your shoes on, Johnny, you gotta go to school, why? Cause I said so, cause the state says so, whatever, you gotta go, I get the kids off of school. Now I gotta rush to work. I get to work, I don't really wanna be there, I start doing my job. Maybe I take a break, somewhere between then and lunch, and then I get lunch off. I'm trying to take care of little things in my life on my phone and answer emails, personal stuff at lunch. I suck down food. I go back to work. And by about, if you work till 5, about 3 o'clock, what starts happening? Either you're looking at your watch, the phone, or the clock on the wall. Two more hours. And those last two hours, crawl and crawl and crawl. And all you can think of is, come on, 5 o'clock or 3.30 or whatever, depending on what your eight-hour day ends at. You get out of work. Now you got to somehow recoup and get the kids back. Meet up with the other spouse. This is if you're married in, in, in the best situation possible. Mom, dad, right? You got to get, you kind of sync back up, hopefully to eat dinner together. Now the kids come home now with ridiculous amounts of homework, hours of homework. Gee, because they're being conditioned to enter this lifestyle too with a model of school that mirrors what you do. 
which is also convenient because the state gets control of your kids for eight hours a day. It's the evening, you're tired, you turn the... T- I just... I just need a release from this stuff. I put on a crime drama or a kid's show. You know, either I put on something I'm going to watch or I put something that keeps the kids' attention span so that they'll stop asking me for more energy that I don't have. Eventually, you crawl into bed and then you do it again. And again. And again. And again. And again. And at this time, if you're not working weekends... Woohoo, it's Friday. Well, maybe we have a little bit of extra money, a little bit of extra time now. Let's take the family out to dinner, what have you. Saturday morning comes. Grocery store. Couple errands thrown in. Kids go play baseball or volleyball or basketball or whatever. Uh, and then Sunday, it's either church or maybe you just take the time at home. And by Sunday afternoon, you're already thinking, oh, tomorrow's Monday. What are you going to do with the free time you have? If you're the typical unaware American, you're going to spend money. And if you have to borrow money, screw it. I'm going to enjoy myself. And there's always going to be a new gadget or new gimmick or something, and you're completely controlled. But the other thing is now you fear leaving a life that's making you miserable. So the control is complete. The control at this point is complete and total. And that's why you have journalists who work their ass off. Don't think that they're all liberals and they're all progressives and they're all programmed. And Some of these people went to school for four years, five years, worked themselves through school, incurred debt just like you did for whatever you do, got out and believed, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell the American people the truth and I'm going to do serious work. And then they bust their ass for 10 years to get anywhere inside the media that anybody even gives a shit what their first name is. And then they finally get to where they start to do something meaningful and you start getting the people in power going, well, that's going to upset our sponsor. We can't talk about that. Government's asked us not to discuss this. Well, this is an expose on what government's doing wrong. Yeah, they don't want us to talk about it, so they're going to kill that story. And you say, why? Why would they stay? Where are they going to go? By now, you've got a car. You've got a house. You've got lease payments. You're still making payments to student law. How do you walk away from that? How do you quit? Then you employ people that go to work for companies that think they're going to do great things with technology to make world better, and all of a sudden they realize they're working to provide security to their company. And okay, that's fine. And next thing you know, their company is taking the data that's supposed to be sacred from their customers and sharing it with other companies and the government, but they got blanket immunity. Why does that person stay there? Can't leave my retirement behind. Police officers. Police officers. To start to see abuses by their fellow officers. Start to see things going wrong. See abuses by the people that are in charge above them. They're told to do things they know are wrong. Some, sometimes they give in, sometimes they fight back. They do what they can. They get by. You talk to them. Why don't you say more? They'll throw me out. I'll have no place to go. I'm only seven years away from retirement now. This is a system of total control. It's economic control, it's debt-based prison control, it's societal pressure control, it's control of your food, it's control of your water, but more than anything else, it's control of your time. It's control of your time. And what 
is the big promise of government? What will a successful government give us? And I don't mean the more informed version of that. I mean the actual marketed promise of government. What does every politician promise to do? Grow the economy and create more jobs and give you more of what is draining the life essence from you to fuel a phony economic system that we're now all vested into up to our eye teeth. That's how messed up the human condition is. This is what we've become. We have little more freedom than bees in a hive or ants in a colony at this point. The minute you start to go, hey, guys, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. Something changes about your pheromones and the other ants start biting you. And if you either chop you up and eat you, or if you're lucky, throw you out of the nest. Well, where do you go? You're an ant. You're a social creature in a non-social world. How do you find others that want to do what you need to do to live? They're out there, but it's hard to see. This is why I encourage people to build their own businesses. It's the only thing that it's the only thing that gets you out of this mess. Well, Jack, what if everybody did it? Here's the here's the good news about that. Sort of, they're not going to. It doesn't mean you have to participate in the madness with them. It really doesn't. We need to become self-sufficient and self-reliant individuals that build self-sufficient and self-reliant communities so that if that system eventually does fall apart, is the, the, the largest Ponzi scheme that's ever been created that it is, that we're resilient enough to help put things back together. But more likely, we need to do it so that if it stays together for our lifetimes and the lifetimes of our children and their children, that we don't have to be compelled to be part of the madness. When I prepare, I've always said to help you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. But the truth is, times are already tough. And success has killed as many people in this country with health and stress concerns as failure has. You have to decide for yourself and your family, do I want to spend the rest of my life in the gerbil wheel because one day they'll promise me that I can get out of it? Or do I just want to get out of it since no one's actually keeping me in the wheel except myself? You have to be careful about when you exit and how you exit. You do. The, 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 the more you have vested into the system, the harder it is to walk away from the system. The harder it is to say, I don't need this anymore. Because in some instances, you do. That's why I'm, I, I, I so want to encourage you people who are 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, don't go into $80,000 worth of student loan debt. Figure out how to make enough money to buy yourself a little piece of land, cash, by the time you're 22, 23, 24 years old. You think it's hard? It's not if it's the only thing you're working for is a place of your own. Find other people like you. Partner up. Get it done. Then build self-sufficiency into your life. And you might find you can work 20 hours a week and be pretty damn happy. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I can't go into them all now. We're two hours into the show. 
but this is the control apparatus. People understand that debt equals slavery, but do you understand the modern lifestyle is slavery? Debt is just one of the ways, it's one of the links in the chain. A society of people who only has a limited amount of free time will squander it. A society of people that has an extensive amount of free time will tend to invest it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show